Support for this podcast and the following message comes from KUST Campus Radio. A student-operated non-commercial radio station, KUST provides students and faculty of St. Thomas a platform dedicated to creative storytelling, diverse viewpoints, and exploring a vast array of audio content. Tune in at any time to KUST at Mixler.com slash KUST hyphen radio. The opinions presented in this podcast are just that, opinions. TommyMedia.com is not a replacement for expert legal advice. The topics discussed may be triggering for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Welcome to the News Brief, Inside the Chauvin Trial, a podcast focusing on updates in the trial of ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. We're your hosts, Kayla Mayer and Maddie Peters. Derek Chauvin is on trial for murder and manslaughter in connection with George Floyd's death on May 25, 2020. In a viral video, Chauvin is seen kneeling on Floyd's neck for over nine minutes after Floyd was arrested on suspicion of trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. The video launched a surge of nationwide protests against police brutality. The other officers seen with Chauvin in the video, Thomas Lane, J. Alexander Kong, and To Tao, will be tried separately in August. Jury selection for Chauvin's trial began March 9th and concluded March 22nd, with opening statements starting the following Monday, March 29th. So where are we right now? Well, on Thursday, April 15th, Chauvin used his Fifth Amendment right to not testify. You understand that you have a Fifth Amendment privilege to remain silent. Do you understand that? Yes. And the defense case rested after just two days, compared to the prosecution's two weeks. After presenting closing arguments on Monday, April 19th, the trial will enter the deliberation period during which the jury will take in everything presented to them and sort through each of the charges, second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. So what is the jury discussing? Joining us today is Kara Levin's Emily Havik. We obviously have three charges. Uh, the jury will be instructed to consider each charge separately. And they're going to get a lot of very complicated, detailed instructions on what the state has to prove in order for them to convict on each charge. The prosecution has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The burden of proof is entirely on them. Three different phases, I guess, that I noticed were like they started out just with like the events that happened. So they brought in a lot of witnesses from the scene to speak about what happened. Then they went into like the use of force policy and then they went into um, medical analysis on the cause of death. Definitely. I, th- I noticed that same kind of those categories. Uh, they started with a lot of bystanders who witnessed um, the restraint. And I think they were doing a couple things with that. Obviously, they're just setting the scene and, and they're bringing in witnesses like you would do in any criminal trial. Um, one thing that was interesting, you were starting to wonder why they were calling every single bystander, especially they brought in a nine-year-old girl. Um, it was kind of traumatizing for her to testify. I'm sure that they weighed that. Um, it kind of became apparent that part of their strategy was to show, um, a lot of these people were kids. They were teenagers. They weren't violent people, um, because part of the defense strategy has been to, paint the crowd as being potentially dangerous to the officers and, and give the jury um, that information saying, you know what, Uh, Chauvin was feeling threatened by this crowd. 
um, they were becoming increasingly agitated. And so the prosecutors knew that he was going to do that. And I think they wanted to head it off by actually introducing the jury to each person and saying, here are the people that are in the bystander crowd. I know that the bystander testimony was pretty emotional. Um, consistently, what I heard over and over was people saying, I still regret that I didn't do more or that I couldn't do more. I think these were people who very clearly carried a lot of trauma and they carried like a guilt. Um, I think you heard one of the teen witnesses say, It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and, and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life, but it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. He should have. Charles McMillan, he was one of the bystanders and he was um, 61 years old. He was there the longest. He went up and started following Floyd and the officers from the very beginning um, while they were still starting to arrest him, trying to get him into the squad car. And he was telling Floyd, you can't win. You, if you've seen the video, you probably heard him. Um, he keeps saying you can't win, you know, and he was trying to help Floyd. He was, he was worried. And so he, t he told the jury that he stayed, um, cause he was really scared of what was going to happen to, to George Floyd. So on the stand, um, he broke down, you know, seeing the video. And I think thinking about that day, and that was really emotional to see. Interesting thing about Charles McMillan is he confronted Derek Chauvin after, um, after George Floyd was taken away in the ambulance, he, he confronted Chauvin and he, he actually told the jury that he had interacted with Derek Chauvin a few days before. And in that interaction, he said, Five days ago, I told you the other day, go home to your family safe, that the next person go make family safe. And what he was saying was sort of this, like, the statement of peace and coexistence, right? Like a, a statement of respect um, that I want you to get home, but I also want the people you're interacting with to get home. And when he went up to Chauvin after, um, afterward, he, he, he essentially said, I have no respect for you anymore. Like, how could you do that? And I think that was also striking because that was one of the first times that we heard Chauvin speak. You haven't heard his voice very much. Um, and he says something to the effect of, um, he's a big guy, we've got to control him. And so that was one of the first times the jury heard him sort of explaining what he had just done and what his view on it was. Um, George Floyd's girlfriend was really emotional testimony. Um, I saw a lot of people commenting afterward um, just on her courage because in speaking about his opiate addiction, she also talked about hers. And if you think about talking about your own drug addiction on international TV live stream, like that takes some real guts. Um, it was definitely hard testimony to watch as well. And that was an interesting part of the prosecution strategy because um, the defense they knew was going to use the drug use and not necessarily to paint 
a, a picture of George Floyd's character, but to say that possibly he overdosed on drugs um, and that was his real cause of death. So they wanted to show it was the drugs and it was his underlying heart conditions. So the prosecution doesn't want to let the defense bring up the drugs and make it seem like a gotcha. So they intentionally introduced that where they could kind of control the narrative around it. Um, and it was interesting to see her, Courtney Ross, talk about, you know, I think people who haven't dealt with drug addiction tend to think of it as very like, um, uh, very, very one dimensional, you know, like this is a person and they're addicted to drugs and that's who they are. She was trying to explain, this wasn't who he was. It's not who I am. It's something that we struggle with. We had months where we were clean and we just, and we loved each other and we had so much fun together and talking about, um, how it's not just this like mono dimensional thing to have a drug addiction, I thought was pretty, pretty incredible. The defense also used that testimony in a way because I, it appears that one, one point they were trying to make is that yes, Floyd might've had a high drug tolerance because he had an opiate addiction, but he had gotten clean or stopped using for a while pretty soon before this event. So I think that they were trying to use that testimony a little bit to say maybe his tolerance went down One other witness that stuck out to me that the prosecution called was the lieutenant who's in charge of the use of force training. And I think one really interesting dynamic to watch has been the strategy and, and sort of inherently the strategy the prosecution has to use is that Chauvin acted outside his training. Have you ever, in all the years you've been working for the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, been trained to kneel on the neck of someone who is handcuffed behind their back in a prone position. No, I haven't. And that he did something that a reasonable officer would not do given his training. What the prosecution tried to do is take all these witnesses from the police department and say, that's not who we are. That's not what we do. We do not train that. I guess I can't speculate on where the truth is. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, because you did have the one use of force trainer who got up there and they said, are you saying you never train that? And he said, well, <laughs> you know, it's not, that's not a trained neck restraint, but he, but he said it, it could have been, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, he says it could have been based on some training that he had. And that training would be to use your body weight to restrain a person. And at one point the defense asked this guy, so in your trainings, is it ever said if someone can talk, they can breathe? And the guy says, it has been said, yes. So it, you're sort of getting this inside look at, you know, we're seeing all these slideshows and, and they do tell you, you know, if you put someone in a prone restraint, you have to turn them to the side. That's been a big point of the prosecution is that even if this restraint was okay in the beginning, um, he was trained and he knew the dangers of a prone restraint. And he, and he didn't turn him over, even when you hear another officer say, hey, should we turn him over a couple times, right? But um, you're hearing also some hints of maybe some conflicting information. And so that's really, and the jury's gonna hear that too, and they're gonna have to decide, um, is this, you know, is this something that he thought might be condoned or not?
There were a few key things that Eric Nelson kept getting in there. I would say one, one thing is this bystander crowd. He, he really wanted the jury to hear, hear testimony about the crowd and the crowd being angry. And he wanted um, to make that point that these people were angry. They outnumbered the officers that there was an element here of um, danger. He, uh, he asked a lot. I mean, he, he got some pretty, <laughs> we've had experts covering the trial for us. And um, a lot of them talk about the cross-examine as like somebody gets good punches in, like he got some good punches in. Um, I would say, especially with around the use of force training, there was definitely some, some points that he hammered home, especially I, I noticed with that Lieutenant in charge of use of force um, and all he needs, remember, he doesn't have the burden of proof. So he really just needs um, a reasonable doubt. And, and he, he knows that he doesn't need every juror to have a reasonable doubt. He just needs one person that he can kind of lock in with and, and one person who's not going to cave. And that could really determine a lot. And then he, he asked a lot of questions about cause of death and the interesting thing is like, sometimes he'll bring stuff up over and over and you're like, I don't know, you know, he's using medical terminology and, and you don't really know what he's talking about. Some of that came to light later as he called his own experts and sort of put forward the theory of what, what the defense theory is, which is that George Floyd had underlying health conditions, including um, hypertension, you know, so his heart, uh, there was also testimony that his heart was slightly enlarged meaning it would need more oxygen. Uh, and the medical testimony and the cause of death is really what his whole strategy hinges on. It's, I would, I mean, I, I think most people have said it's the most important thing because um, what he wants is to say George Floyd or what his medical expert said is George Floyd died of a sudden cardiac arrest while he was in this restraint, that it wasn't caused by the restraint. Um, and then that his heart conditions and his, uh, the drugs in his system were contributing causes. The drugs that came back in George Floyd's, you know, autopsy and toxicology report um, became very important to the defense because it's, it's one more thing that they can show the jury. Maybe this is the cause of death. Maybe it's part of the cause of death. The meth, everyone testified. And even, you know, these are not witnesses who have an agenda for the prosecution or the defense, like just the guy who tested the blood for drugs, he gets up there and says, so Mr. Floyd's level of 19 nanograms per milliliter, that was exceptionally low. Is that right? In relationship to the DUI drug population. Yes. The meth dose was basically the equivalent of one dose that a doctor might prescribe. And of course, everyone was careful to say, you know, no amount of methamphetamine off the street is safe but this is a low dose, a very low dose, they said. The fentanyl is much trickier because um, I think that the measurement was 11 nanograms per milliliter, which doesn't mean anything to me, to most people, I think. And it really doesn't mean that much in general because it, it's completely dependent on your tolerance. So it felt a little bit like everyone was just speculating on what this might've done to him based on his tolerance. Cause they don't really know what the prosecution tried to do is say, look, we don't know because it's, it's person to person. All we can do is look at evidence of an overdose, um, symptoms of an overdose, sorry. So 
all we can do is look at symptoms of an overdose and he wasn't exhibiting the symptoms of an overdose. Going off, I guess, we're kind of talking about the defense's main argument here. Um, so they had, they only had two days um, for their case, but it seems that three main points, I guess, that they kind of focused on was um, the nature of Floyd's death, that Chauvin was following his training, and tensions from the crowd. They had significantly less witnesses that they brought in. Um, and I feel like a big part of, a big chunk of their case was actually in the cross-examination of the prosecution's witnesses. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, I think part of the reason is that they get a lot of time on cross-examine. I mean, sometimes the defense probably cross-examined longer um, than the prosecution did. So, or longer than the prosecution did the direct. So definitely he gets a lot of his points and his questions in while the prosecution is presenting its case. Um, I think he would have called some of the same witnesses. I will say there were people that he wanted to call that he couldn't, or at least one person, Maurice Hall, who pleaded uh, the Fifth Amendment right not to testify. And he really wanted Hall. So that was tough on his case because he wanted Hall, who was with George Floyd when he was arrested, to testify about the drugs that Floyd uh, allegedly took and the effect it was having on him. Um, he does not have to testify. The Fifth Amendment right is very, very important right of the accused not to incriminate themselves. They had a few things they wanted to do. They showed a 2019 arrest of George Floyd. And with that, they wanted to show his body's response to the opiates, which is that a paramedic took his blood pressure and was very alarmed by it. Um, they almost didn't even let them bring that up because it, it would be like evidence of past bad behavior, which the judge has to agree to. But he did agree just very narrowly to let them introduce it and just talk about like a couple of things. So they just wanted to show the jury, this is what drugs might've done to Floyd in a similar situation when he was arrested. Um, and under pressure, you know, scared. Um, and so that didn't take as long as it would have if Nelson had been really allowed to go over everything he wanted to. Um, and then of course he had his own use of force expert who um, has also testified in, in a pretty prominent case of a, of a black man dying in police custody or um, which is the Laquan McDonald case. Uh, in Chicago. And so I think the defense thought that one of their best witnesses was going to be Dr. Andrew Baker, who was an actual medical examiner who wrote Floyd's autopsy report. And, you know, as, as one of our experts watching the trial mentioned, um, Nelson, when he gave his opening statement, he actually quoted the autopsy report. What was Mr. Floyd's actual cause of death? The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension, his coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline throwing, flowing through his body, all of which acted to further compromise an already compromised heart. So what Baker ruled as the the cause of death was cardiopulmonary arrest complicating law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. 
complicating, we heard several definitions of complicating, right? Like he wrote this and suddenly it became the kind of the cornerstone of this entire trial. Um, both the prosecution and the defense wanted to get certain information from him. Um, so I think the defense was really leaning on, on his cause of death that he ruled. And then he said complicating factors, complicating conditions, and he listed the heart condition and the drugs. When the defense got their expert up there, what he said is that George Floyd died of a sudden cardiac arrhythmia or sudden cardiac event during the restraint. And where do we go from here? So the second degree murder charge is kind of the big one that that um, is probably the toughest to get in, in some ways. It carries the biggest, longest sentence. Um, and that one is second degree murder uh, while committing a felony. And it's unintentional second degree murder. So they don't have to prove intent, um, but they do have to prove that, that Chauvin caused Floyd's, de Floyd's death, which is obviously a big um, defense strategy to cast that into doubt. So they have to prove he caused the death while committing a felony. And the felony is third degree assault. And so third degree assault has its own list of things, right? So it's very, very complicated for the jury to go through all these and figure out, did they meet the burden of proof in each one? Um, one of the charges that's a little bit, it's the maximum sentence is 10 years. And it's probably, I would think a little easier for the state to prove is the um, second degree manslaughter. And so that's the one, I mean, you hear about these cases getting manslaughter more often, and that's partly because the burden of proof is lower. Um, and then the really weird one is third degree murder, um, which you have to show that the person um, committed an act that was so dangerous um, that it, it, event, it evinced a depraved mind, um, <laughs> which I, I it's a very weird charge. This is the charge that Mohammed Noor was convicted on in the shooting of Justine Ruschik Damon. And so the interesting thing about third degree murder is that you've probably heard uh, in your audience has probably heard about the back and forth over this charge. It almost delayed the whole trial. Um, the prosecutors initially charged him with third degree murder and the judge actually dismissed that charge and said, third degree murder only counts when it's when the act, the death causing act endangers more than one person. So the classic example is shooting into a crowd. Um, and so the judge said, does, charge doesn't work with one person. You know, George Floyd was the only person endangered. Then um, Mohammed Noor appealed this conviction for himself and the Minnesota Court of Appeals actually upheld the conviction and said specifically in their ruling, um, third degree murder can actually be used when only one person is endangered, which is very different from the history of the charge in Minnesota. So the judge actually saw that and the prosecutor said, hey, well, now we can use this charge, can we put it back on? He saw that and he said, I don't know <laughs> what they're doing. That, that's a very surprising ruling, but I, I think the state Supreme Court might, might override their decision. So I'm not gonna put this on there yet until we resolve it. The Minnesota Court of Appeals actually said, no, you can't do that. Once we make a ruling, you're a lower judge, <laughs> you have to follow it. And if the state Supreme Court wants to overturn it later, they can. But right now, 
this is what we decided, you got to go with it. So judge puts it back on. So now Chauvin is charged with third degree murder and he, he could be convicted of third degree murder. But if he does get convicted of that charge, there's this other case moving through the court system now that could impact that. So Noor is having the state Supreme Court hear his case in June. And should the state Supreme Court rule that it doesn't count when only one person is endangered, presumably Chauvin could appeal and potentially win his appeal. The other thing is that Noor could appeal again <laughs> if, if he loses and they say, no, it still counts. Then it could go to the US Supreme Court, theoretically. I'm not saying it would, but so this is going to be really, really interesting to watch play out. So that charge is tricky because say that's, I mean, say that he does get convicted of third degree murder, it, it, it could certainly end up, uh, he could certainly end up winning an appeal if it goes that way in the courts. Um, the other thing that a lot of people talk about, of course, is a hung jury um, where the jury just can't agree. And that's kind of a scary prospect, especially when so much time has gone into a trial. I mean, and the amount of money and time that they've put in both sides is, is incredible. So nobody really wants that, I don't think. But um, if the jury can't, they have to be anonymous. So if they can't agree, um, they will go back to the judge, presumably, and say, we can't agree. Then the judge will tell them to keep trying. So there's sort of, there's sort of a process for this. He, he would have like a legal script that he would read. He, he has to be very careful with the wording um, because it's all going to be looked at later if, if Chauvin appeals, right? So he has to be very careful with the wording and he reads in some instructions and he sends them back. At some point, it's possible that um, the judge could decide this jury's never going to reach a consensus and then it would be a mistrial. The nation was already looking at Minneapolis through magnifying glass following Floyd's death and into the Chauvin trial. The recent death of 20-year-old Dante Wright occurring just 10 miles from Minneapolis heightened the already high tensions. These jurors were already worried about the public backlash to whatever they decide. And generally, probably, they're going to be a little bit more nervous to deliver a verdict of not guilty. I think that's what most of them said. Some people might have said the opposite, but the majority of them said, um, a little nervous what would happen if, and, and all the jurors that they ended up seating, you know, said, I'm not going to let that impact me. But so I think just knowing that um, the tensions are that much higher in the city right now, in the city's uh, metro area, certainly has to be weighing on them. The death of Dante Wright does not necessarily impact the courtroom and the decisions made by the jury. But the tension has, if anything, ramped up, and it seems the Twin Cities, the nation, and even the world are anxiously awaiting the trial's outcome. Thank you for listening. Check TommyMedia.com for the latest updates on the trial. With Maddie Peters, I'm Kayla Mayer for The News Brief, Inside the Chauvin Trial. <laughs>